Okay, indexes. Well, very positive point here. We've got hundreds of years of expertise in dealing with information and knowledge. And we've got to convince people that we know what we're doing and to act in a professional way, which we do all the time. But it's a battle that is never won. It's continuous. It's like painting the fourth bridge. Uh, but it's a good starting point. So looking at indexes here to categorize, to cross-search, and to understand the meaning of our lives, essentially. So it's not about placing information in certain repositories necessarily, it's about what you do with it. That's what I would argue. So there's a danger here of perhaps archivists being on one side of the counter and of customers being on the other side of the counter and of us serving up data, serving up information when it really should be more of a conversation, I think. And increasingly we're seeing crowdsourcing now in other areas of life. Uh, and we're going to see it intruding more into the archive world as well. And I think that's something that we need to, to deal with. We need to embrace it, but beware of the dangers in terms of quality, especially, of the data that we get back from people. But also to embrace the, the conflicts, as it were. There was a project I was working on some time ago, and there were at least half a dozen people around the world, experts on this subject. So we had content. We'd catalogued the content that needed, uh, needed defining further. And they all argued about what the meaning of a particular phrase was, the significance of an event was that we were describing. And I think we're going to get more of that, and we have to act as arbiters and intermediaries, in fact, between to, to, to settle these disputes, as it were. So <coughs> our skills and knowledge and expertise, and skills and knowledge and expertise as counsellors and as conflict resolvers needs to be up to scratch, I think, in the crowdsource world. So I think we need to demystify perhaps some of the terminology that we use to engage with the public more effectively, and that's the meaning of this slide here. So why authorities when we've got this baby here, Google? Well, we'll move rapidly on to the next slide. Well, first of all, because when I give talks like this to people, and to students, especially at university, I'm based in King's College London, I should have mentioned that, they say, can't we just find it on Google? And I say, well, Google's a starting point. It's a good starting point. But if you have 10,000 returns, have you got the time to, to work your way through them? And to pick up what I was saying earlier about impact, it's also about sustainability. Sustainability for us and sustainability of the wider world. What do you do with all the data that you're getting back? And there is the danger of that overload. And again, we're there to act as, hopefully, uh, honest brokers to help navigate people through this soup, this pea soup of data that's out there. So you can get too much information back from Google, or the wrong sort of information, as we know. And of course, they have their own commercial interests at heart as well, and that's another factor. But of course, they, they and others are actually thinking about the structuring and are working on the structuring of data. So they know it's not just enough to pick out keywords and to have clever, smart algorithms that will do things. You're also thinking about, this is a, a screenshot from schema.org, about how you structure your data online, and offline in fact, to embed knowledge and understanding. And I think that's really a role in future for archivists. And for, to work alongside other types of professionals as well, information professionals, but also expertise from other disciplines uh, and the wider world, to do that defining, to do that defining role about what things mean. And to embed it in a way that is machine readable. And like Jane, we worked on a number of linked data projects in the last few years. And we developed a linked data annotation tool. That was one thing we did. We released uh, a World War I battles vocabulary. 
which hopefully people will be using in the next two or three years, which is an hierarchical battle's vocabulary for at least the Western Front, but other theatres as well for the First World War. But tremendous, that really the technical bit was just the, the icing on the cake, and actually the research that went into it, and the arguments that we had about whether one battle ends here and another one begins there, did it start on this day, did it start on the other day, it's those sorts of ambiguities that we have to understand and, and contextualise and make machine readable. So what you're generating there is really the means by which you can engage with arguments in the wider world. And that will increase the role of the archivist. So it's not just somebody who is providing, managing, capturing, managing and providing information, but actually has a role in there in terms of, of handling it and wrangling it, in fact. So I look after AIM25, which is an aggregator for London. We get a lot of hits, a lot of interest. We get hundreds of thousands of hits, and that equates to a lot of unique users, people actually sitting in front of computers looking at things. It's difficult because the world of um, web analytics is a, is a bit of a dark art, and so one set of statistics isn't necessarily <coughs> comparable to another. But a lot of people are looking at it and using it. It's a practical tool. So we have many thousands of descriptions that are in there, and we share those <coughs> regularly with the Archives Hub. Uh, we get information in from vendors, systems like Calm or AdLib. So we're having to, uh, to handle all this data and present it in, in hopefully a useful way and output in many other respects because I'm an advocate of certainly having an aggregation like this. I'm a big fan of aggregators. I would be because I run one. Um, but also letting a thousand flowers bloom um, and putting out your data in different places. The key thing is ensuring then that there's consistency and that updates in one place are, are up, updates in another so that you don't get a, a horrible mismatch developing. But if you do get a mismatch, it's not necessarily a bad thing. As I said just a moment ago, it could be a point of debate, the beginning of a conversation that's being had uh, that can lead to other projects and other funding, in fact. And on the right-hand side there, you can see some of the top-level terms. And actually, about half of our hits come via our index terms, which is a very, very interesting statistic. So that's people not necessarily putting in a search term in the Google-type box that you see in the top right there, but navigating our index terms. So people really are familiar with that, otherwise the statistic wouldn't count. Okay, now this is an example from the First World War. I just brought it up. You can't read it. It's too small for you. I just typed in World War One. That's from our index uh, lists and bringing back a whole variety of different institutions which hold World War I related material and reading these descriptions it's not necessarily immediately apparent of course uh, the term World War I won't necessarily appear it might be Great War, it might be First World War it might be The War and then somebody has to do that interpretation very useful to note that every single one of these descriptions is a different institution which I think is another valuable lesson in, in, in aggregation and how powerful aggregation can be because of course you couldn't do the same thing on Google. If you typed in World War I on Google and perhaps archives you could spend hours getting to the point at which you could get to with just a couple of clicks from here. So moving on to this and what you can do with indexing and with authorities you can ensure that they're invisible. They're not necessarily visible to the public like they were on the previous slide all the clever stuff that the archivists and the technologists and the programmers and the other people have done in defining things, linking things, contextualizing things, 
can be embedded in a machine-readable way so that you don't necessarily, as a user, see what's going on. And, and there is some advantage in doing that. People feel, if you get the trust right, that what they're getting back is trusted, trusted results that are a result of these conversations and arguments that have been had. So to take the First World War project as a, Trenches to Triples, it was called, as an example, there we had historians and the archivists <coughs> were working together, having arguments around a table with coffee available and cake and biscuits, and saying, what does this mean? What does that mean? No, I disagree. This book says this. This book says this. An academic will say, well, I've seen sources elsewhere that conflict with that. So you have to synthesize all that and somehow embed it in a machine-readable way. That's one way in which you can approach it. So you don't see it. It's magic underneath the bonnet. Another way is to move away from the sort of tabular approach altogether. And instead of having words, you have graphics and visualization. And I've chosen this example. This is probably you've all seen this link jazz in the past, but a lot of these visualizations are becoming more commonplace. And in two or three years' time, we'll all be using them, I think. That's one of the things that's really happening now in a big, big way. And there are lots of libraries of code, lots of libraries of visualization, widgets and so on that are out there that are ready to plug into WordPress uh, and other applications. Uh, and we're going to be utilizing, and what this does show here, you, again, you can't really see, you can just see some blobs with lines in between, but you can navigate between different people, you can show the relationships between people. And that all has to be defined somewhere, it has to be programmed in, but it's programming in knowledge and experience, and that's where the archivist comes in. So I think these sort of graphic realizations are really powerful ones for networks. So really, I'd like to see an archive catalogue online that has a vanilla version, where you have all your traditional ISAG fields, and then you have these types of relationship graphs as well, which are made available. Have to get the balance right, otherwise it becomes a gimmick, and people don't really understand, it just looks nice, doesn't it? <coughs> has to have real impact and meaning, but it's something that can really capture the public imagination, and it's another way of representing our information. I chose this slide here. It's a traditional example of Churchill that we always raise when we're talking about authority records, essentially mini biographies really, in that different archives that hold papers of an individual like Winston Churchill might have different spins on what he did during the course of his career because they hold that material uh, relevant to that aspect of his career. So for example, the National Gallery might hold material relating to Churchill as a painter. Uh, and Churchill Archives Centre in, in Cambridge might hold material on Churchill the statesman and then a military one will hold material on Churchill the soldier and so on. And really the point I wanted to make about this slide was what is authority and that's becoming slightly more contested now in the world that we're living in and increasingly that will be the case. So our idea what, what actually is authority, what is the authoritative version of something is not necessarily clear and we need to navigate through that potential obstacle course there and try to come up with some answers um, or at least throw up some further questions that we can consider answering. Um, I don't think there is one clear answer. Whether we are living in a more contested world absolutely now as opposed to say the 18th or 19th century is another matter. If you delve deeply you see underneath the surface of what was happening in previous times a lot of a lot was bubbling away underneath there uh, that we're not necessarily aware of. We think that everything is thrown into the mix now. 
but I think in the past it was like that. It just weren't aware of it necessarily. So moving on to the profession and where we sit in all this, I think there is a danger here. Now, Blockbusters five years ago was big. We all had our Blockbusters cars, or well, some of us did, and we went along and got our videos out. Okay, there were DVDs, they weren't traditional videos, but it was the same process. Five years later, they're gone. And I think there's a real danger here that archivists have got to keep up to speed, otherwise, in a few years, uh, they're, they're in very danger in certain respects of being left behind by technological developments. Uh, they need to move with the times and really get with the program, as it were. And this is the danger, blockbusters. So I suppose in this place now, there's a pound shop. It's, uh, it's got to be very, very careful. And this here is another slide that illustrates the point. This is the Amazon um, robots at work in one of the Amazon factories. And I think what archivists definitely need to move away from is looking, looking at things in a commodity-based way, so the bulk processing of data, the bulk <coughs> management of boxes necessarily, stuff, and really think about our skills and how we can get our skills and knowledge, interpretive knowledge, out there and understood. And this slide here was supposed to be interpretation. This is a good lesson in when you search through image libraries about putting in the right terms. And actually, there's a serious point here, which is that archivists could learn a lot from what's been done in commercial image libraries to certainly um, surface intangible concepts. And I run an image library at King's College. has about 300,000 things in it. So historical objects, but also all the marketing stuff to do with the history of an institution. And we did a survey recently of the marketing staff, people involved in press and publications, fundraising, and they came back with some very interesting results about what they wanted. They didn't necessarily want to find a picture of a particular student or staff member or campus, although that did figure. They really wanted to find intangible things, things that really one wouldn't necessarily have thought of. So they wanted to find a student that was both smiling and angry at the same time, or <laughs> an academic who uh, looked happy and sad at the same time and very complex uh, renderings of human experience that they needed to capture and at the same time they say they want them to have a blue background and I want them to be wearing a yellow shirt because of course that will fit into the page design in the booklet they'll be producing and that's the number one that those sorts of questions and requirements are the number one thing that we see so this is supposed to be an dream an interpretive dream interpreting dreams. I don't know why that one came out. And actually, I, I took the screenshot of the results here. Now, you've got Freud there. He comes up. Well, how did he come up in there? So somebody must have done some sort of tagging of some description. Is it accurate or isn't it accurate? Because there's some bizarre pictures when you bring this, these, these things up. And very lazily, people have actually put the interpretation of dreams. So they actually take book titles and stick them up. I think that's cheating. You really, Because it's a real skill, getting that right. So... We can learn a lot from the commercial world, which is the point that I'm making here, the wider world and what they do. So I think that archivists need to play to their strengths, which are understanding collections and storytelling. So I think less in terms of data. We all need to know what to do with data. We need to know how to, to manipulate it. That's very important. But also it's about telling a story. And that's what people want to hear. That's what inspires them. And it's a bit like driving, when I drive my open-top Lamborghini down a winding Tuscan road, if I drove a Lamborghini down a winding <laughs> Tuscan road, with the hood down and the wind in my hair, what there is of it left, 
That's the dream. But of course, the engine that's underneath the bonnet, which is what we all deal with as well, is the data. And the engine is a thing of beauty as well, as the story and the endpoint. Uh, and to have something working effectively, a beautiful engine working effectively, that is really a thing of, a thing of beauty. <coughs> and I think we should be proud of what we do uh, in that area. Now, storytelling. And lastly, we haven't just got to sit behind the counter. We've got to participate, I think. And we've got to get involved. We've got to tell our own stories. And we've got to develop our own things with the data. 3D visualization, why not some of that? Why can't you take a linked data project and embed the emotions and the understanding and everything and output it as, as 3D, 3D visualization? Or a building, if you understand, you have building plans, you have your blueprints. Well, you don't want to leave it at that. You've got a lot of boring blueprints in your archive. Let's get them, let's get them out, let's reinterpret them. Let's print it out as 3D models of buildings and let's move around them. Or artwork, for example, or games. Let's get involved with uh, the gaming industry or with developers. And that's another bugbear of mine, the way that often we have conferences and the archivists go to one conference and then the hack people and the developers go to another conference and they need to work more effectively together so that they understand each other. And lastly, I'd say making beautiful music. And that's me. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.